This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is Preg Your Pardon's favorite podcast growth and distribution platform. And the best part, it's free. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, maybe you should consider Anchor. If you're interested, you can download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Once again, you can download that free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, PYP listeners. I'm Gailey McDougall, pronouns she, her, licensed midwife and moderator of this little podcast. Today, I'd like to welcome Samantha Jones, or as we call her around here, Sam, pronouns she, her. Sam is a certified nurse midwife and a family nurse practitioner who has been serving Middle Tennessee since 2010. Sam graduated from Cedarville University in 1998 and Vanderbilt University School of Nursing in 2004. She started her career as a full-scope certified nurse midwife at Birth and Beyond in Spring Lake, Michigan, before moving to the Nashville area and joining the faculty at Vanderbilt in 2006 until taking a clinical position at Cool Springs Family Medicine in 2010. For the last 12 years, Sam has been one of the most credible and trusted family health care providers in Middle Tennessee and has earned the reputation of someone who will advocate and go above and beyond for her patients in the clinic and in the community. She's also a very valuable collaborator to many licensed midwives in the Nashville birth community. When Sam isn't serving the community clinically, she is mothering her three children, ages 16, 14, and 7, coaching soccer, cuddling her puppies, enjoying local music, or sharing a meal at her favorite Mediterranean cafe north of Nashville, where she's raising her family with her husband, Kyle. Sam is also one of my dearest friends, and I'm so excited to chat with her today about informed decision-making and consent and refusal, and what all that means. So let's get started. Welcome, Samantha Jones, to Preg Your Pardon. Well, thank you. It's so good to have you here. I'm excited to chit-chat about this. Um, I know this is a topic that's really um, kind of a foundational topic for you two in your clinical clinical practice and just how you navigate decision-making with your clients. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, let's get started. What, just for our listeners who are kind of just trying to figure out what we're talking about, what does informed decision-making even mean? So informed decision-making is all of the ideas surrounding how does a person who is receiving some type of health care, if we're speaking in under the health care umbrella, mm-hmm. um, how do they make decisions for themselves or for the people for whom they're responsible with all the information they need to make a good decision and support it in that decision. Um, and, and that of course kind of coalesces into legal responsibility of the people making the decision, the people informing that mm-hmm. person. Um, how is that done? Right. How can they make their best decision? Mm-hmm. And so often it includes biases, life experiences too. It's not just weighing out evidence and checking boxes. And I think that sometimes gets convoluted in conversations when we're talking about, um, you know, the 
the popular word, the popular phrase, evidence-based yes. information and yes. in, informed decision-making. And we kind of lump it all into yeah. the same box. And so I like to remind people we use evidence to make informed decision-making, but evidence-based decisions aren't always 100% about evidence. Sometimes they're about life experiences and preferences yeah. and even provider skill set and scope and yeah I would say always those mm -hmm. things are at least a part of it in varying degrees yeah mm -hmm. and the other thing too you know we we talk about informed consent a lot um but informed refusal I think is the part that kind of gets missed out of the conversation sometimes when we're talking about um, informed decision making so mm. it's it's pretty self-explanatory in the title, but will you just kind of go over, you know, informed consent and informed refusal and what that might look like um, in real life? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think there's a critical distinction there to be made because the entire purpose of information, of being informed, is for that client then to be able to decide, do I accept whatever is being offered mm -hmm. or do I refuse it? Mm -hmm. The information means nothing if the assumption is I'll always consent. Yeah. So um, it's important to understand that by informing people good things that can happen, bad things that can happen, reasons why we offer this, what's the likelihood of this happening versus that happening? Um, how might that be different for you than it is for another client or for me or for a different um, you know, people group or community? The idea then is we're not, if, we, if everything would be informed consent and we're not really focusing on the idea of informed refusal, there is a coercion there that mm -hmm. ultimately our goal is to get a client to consent to something versus inform a client about a procedure mm -hmm. so that they can consent or refuse on the basis of the information that, that they're being presented with. Mm -hmm. So they still deserve support and and have a right to, um, you know, continued care and all of those things when they refuse a procedure based on the information given to them mm -hmm. uh, versus just when they consent to it. Yeah. Um, so just to piggyback off of that and, and provide an example that I think is, is probably relevant to a lot of our listeners, one of the most common times that I kind of see this being offered in more of an informed consent without informed refusal context mm -hmm. is, um, say, during an induction or um, in a hospital setting, typically um, when a provider is offering to break someone's water. Mm. So this is a real typical yeah. conversation that happens where somebody might walk in, the provider will walk into the room, introduce themselves if they haven't already, um, kind of check and see how everybody's doing, and then just innocently say, you're at two centimeters, you're at three centimeters, whatever the case may be. And, you know, I'm thinking that it's probably a good idea to go ahead and break your water to get things moving along. Yeah. Um, is that something that you feel like, you know, you would like to do? So like without any benefits, risks, any information okay. really, yeah. and very rarely any conversation of refusal. Yeah of even the option. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. Um, and you might even say, here's why we do it. You know, that's considered information. Mm -hmm. So as a provider, well, I have given, you know, I mm -hmm. have provided information. Now I expect you to consent mm -hmm. because it affects my timing. It affects my 
other patients, perhaps all mm-hmm. those unspoken things. Um, so, as a provider who's worked in a hospital setting, yes, and and in, in so I have primarily as a as a midwife at least have always worked in an out of hospital setting. Mm-hmm. So you've worked in both. Yeah. Do you think that that's an issue of training? Do you think it's an issue of um, habit? What is it? What? Why is that so common in the out of hospital setting to be have information delivered like that? And an excellent question. I, I think that training is part of it mm-hmm. for sure because mm-hmm. it's an idea that when we kind of just go in and presume, let's get this done, mm-hmm. the perception is that the provider doesn't really recognize a whole lot of risk. Mm-hmm. And so you assume you pass that baton mm-hmm. to the client. I'm letting you know this is really no big deal. Let's just get it done. You want this. That's not informed consent. That's a coercion to mm-hmm. a degree. But I think the biggest reason why you see a difference in the hospital setting versus the out-of-hospital setting isn't just philosophy. It's the logistical aspects of it. In a home setting, chances are, and I know we've all had weeks that are not like this, but chances are your focus is on one laboring mom on a given day. Mm -hmm. You might have somebody in the wings, you might have your phone on and be aware, but you're not managing six people. Mm -hmm. You're not coming back and forth. You're not worried that when seven o'clock rolls around or 11 rolls around or whatever time it might be in your setting, that you're off the clock and somebody else is on. Mm -hmm. So the timing of if you're on my watch, this shift, this is my client, I'm the provider, and we're rolling in active labor, the goal is that I'm going to pull out any barriers to getting this job finished and signing off. Mm -hmm. And I've got other people waiting, and if we all deliver at the same moment, that's going to be chaotic. And so speed is of the essence. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not in any way in the best interest of mom or baby or family. Mm but it's in the best interest of the provider. And they're not malicious about it. Right, right. But they're just thinking, I can be my best self and have things organized and be present for everybody if we expedite things wherever we can. And artificial rupture of the membranes is an excellent example of, we think of this as something that just expedites it. But, mm-hmm. it, but it changes the experience, mm-hmm. what it feels like, the control of the birthing person. There's a lot to rupture of the membranes. It's not as simple as the provider sometimes makes it mm-hmm. sound. Mm-hmm. And the evidence is a little bit, um, sometimes I think that that's delivered a little bit, um, probably not on purpose, but a little bit inaccurately because the evidence does show that it it does speed up second stage, but not not really first stage. Right. And so when they, when they mention that, yeah, you know, this is an intervention that has been shown to, to speed things up, quote unquote, they're not yeah. being real specific. So they're right. not, you know. Yeah. The other thing I'm wondering too, as as you were talking, sometimes I wonder if the reason why the risks aren't laid out as specifically as they are maybe in an out-of-hospital setting in a birth center or at a, in, in a home setting, mm-hmm. I wonder if those risks are running in the background a little bit more with hospital providers than they are with out-of-hospital providers because... For me, I don't have an OR right down the hallway. Right. I don't have a whole team of people that can run in and help me right. if my intervention causes a risk that even though it might be rare, could happen. So yes. those are always on the forefront of my mind, which make it really easy for me to translate that to my clients. Yeah. I know there's a risk of court prolapse. I know there's a risk of infection. I know there's a risk of malpresentation. Mm-hmm. So 
I want to make sure that if I'm going to do something that my client knows these are risks and that they're taking responsibility for those risks. Because if they happen, we're going to have to move real fast and it's going to look really different than it would if we were in a hospital setting. So I I wonder sometimes too, if that's part of it. I think you're absolutely right. Because the idea is at the end of the day in the obstetric setting, traditionally, I don't lump everybody together, but Mm -hmm. traditionally the idea is how many people have we served? How efficient are we? Mm -hmm. And what are our outcomes? When we're talking about outcomes, we're primarily looking at mortality, mm-hmm. you know, to a degree, right. morbidity complications, but mortality. Yeah. So we're going to see certain number of prolapses that can typically be handled quickly. Mm-hmm. We can easily hang a bag of antibiotic if, you know, mm-hmm. chorioamnionitis develops. These are just kind of things that we're willing to take in stride because the outcome is what are my numbers mm-hmm. and did moms and babies come out of this okay? Where in the out-of-hospital setting, the experience of the birthing family also matters. Right. So a crash section, a high fever, separation of mom and baby, additional medications, um, those things have a profound impact, but mm-hmm. they're considered par for the course in a hospital setting. Yeah, yeah. Healthy mom, healthy baby really has two different definitions depending yeah. on the setting that you're in. Yeah. I mean, the bar really is, did everybody make it uh, out alive? living mom, living baby. And yeah. then Correct. at home, it really is the holistic experience of yeah. both and the physiology and the long-term consequences and the trauma. And yes. All of that, yeah. And then the other thing, too, that I wonder about sometimes— um, I mean, anybody that's watched Grey's Anatomy knows this is true, but there's a hierarchy in a hospital setting that exists, almost like a military hierarchy where there's rank and file and you don't argue with the person at the top of of the ladder. And I wonder if sometimes that gets passed down to patients who are in the hospital who are seen as kind of the lowest of the hierarchy. Yeah. Um, And we don't have that. We don't really have a hierarchy in out-of-hospital settings. I mean, we have assistants and we have doulas and we have families and we all kind of consider ourselves like on the same team providing different skill sets and different um, aspects of care. And so I wonder sometimes, do you, do you see that too? Do you think that that has a lot to do with, with it? That hot Without a doubt. Mm-hmm. It, my experience in attending hospital births does go back, um, you know, quite a distance since I've done that. But I was also a labor and delivery nurse in that same setting. So, you know, the, the, the experience with the hierarchy in hospital setting is fairly robust in my mind. Um, and I distinctly remember scenarios where even someone along the way in that chain might be prompted to advocate or think, desire to advocate for a Mm -hmm. client in a certain situation over something minor. doesn't Mm -hmm. affect the big numbers at the end of the year, but it affects the experience of that family. Mm -hmm. I can recall determining how to handle that based on who's on call. Mm -hmm. This group of anesthesiologists, this individual, this Mm -hmm. obstetrician, people that you felt comfortable saying, this is what she wants to do, we're going to do it. And people that you wouldn't dare suggest anything outside of what you know is what they do, including she doesn't want her water broken right now. She wants to wait, you know, and they look at you like you're absolutely off your rocker for suggesting we'll have a baby sooner. Mm -hmm. First of all, that's assumed. And, mm-hmm. and as you mentioned right. before, not wholly accurate if she's mm-hmm. three or four centimeters when we're having this discussion. But how the five hours between now and then transpires in that room that you won't be there for, but I will, and she right. will, right. Um, those things mattering too. But there, there were people that 
for anybody listening who knows me, it won't come as a surprise as a fairly young, idealistic, childless nurse. I did get on my tiptoes and go head to head with some of those people that inside of me, you wouldn't dare. Mm-hmm. Um, but that urge to say, this is what she told me she wants. Mm-hmm. And even if my hands are shaking a little, I'm going to tell you that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a brief example that I remember is working with, a, I love him now, but military experienced um, obstetrician on the little unit where I worked. And um, he wasn't an unpleasant guy, but she did things his way. Yeah. Um, and the first time I suggested the, the multip who was in, in transitional labor wanted to deliver on her hands and knees. Mm-hmm. And out at the desk, he's like, I'm all thumbs. I don't even know what I'm looking for. And I said, well, isn't the onus on you to figure that out? Because I'm mm. not going to flip her over or insist that she does something different. I think we're going to have to just get through it. He shook his head and rolled his eyes and was more than a little irritated. Mm-hmm. But guess what? That baby was born mm-hmm. following, you know, her absolute natural rotations and, and uh, um, motions like every other baby does. Right. And everybody was fine. And that mom's experience was 180 degrees different because that's, where she felt in control. Mm-hmm. He didn't recognize or care about that, but she did. Mm-hmm. And I did tell him, I did tell him, this is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, it, you know, it, it, at the time, a little bit terrifying, but also a little bit exhilarating. And over the years, I think we developed a, um, you know, a, a rapport of some respect due to things like that. But the fact that I should have to think about, if I was saying it to this OB, I wouldn't think twice, but saying it to this one, um, that's a whole different story. And I know the patients felt that way too. Yeah. It was presented, this is what we're going to do. And a little bit of uh, body language that's like, there is no, whatever you read online or wrote in your birth plan, you're just going to be here all day if you choose this. Mm-hmm. You know, the way mm-hmm. you see it isn't really accurate. Mm-hmm. I know how this works mm-hmm. as the provider. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, just based on that hierarchy that I'm at the top and I know more yeah. than you, so trust me that- yeah. So we're yeah, going to do it my yeah. way, no matter no matter what you think about the experience. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's so, so important for people to understand who are either planning um, planning a birth in a setting that does revolve around those hierarchies to to know like nobody's being malicious. Um, I don't want to say nobody. I don't know everybody, but I think yeah. most people are not malicious. They they practice based on how they were trained mm-hmm. and where they fit within that hierarchy. Right. But it also exists outside of the, like in the in the community, even as an out-of-hospital provider, I still know that if I end up in that, in that system, if I have to transfer, if I have to collaborate, sure. if I need a referral or anything, I kind of know there's that hierarchy and I know the language that I need to use and how to facilitate that yeah. in order to like, even just to be listened to and have Not a seat at the table feathers. and yeah, and just be a credible, have a credible conversation. So absolutely. So yeah. So I think that there's so much more to the whole informed decision making conversation. Sometimes we just we we deliver it as like we need to just we just need to have informed decision making. We need to, you know, make sure that our clients are practicing informed consent and check that box off. But mm-hmm. there's so many dynamics. Yeah, we mean we have to have information. The yeah. consent the definition of the word is the client willingly acquiesces or accepts yeah. that. And that's not part of the definition in our heads some of the time. Yeah. Which actually just like my brain started turning 
thinking about consent in other contexts. And if we're taught from such a young age that there's a hierarchy and that our consent only matters within a hierarchy, then that sure sets up a really dangerous foundation later on for parenting, sexual health, relationships, intimacy, and other things too that probably is a whole nother podcast. But paying attention to that for our kids has become such a, such a topic that's, uh, it's ridiculed by the people who um, either fail to see entirely why mm-hmm. consent for children is important because the job of children is to yeah. obey and follow along, uh, not consent or have say, mm-hmm. um, and how we can't separate that those expectations that are healthy and necessary for a child from consent about touch and um, mm-hmm. activity and things like that with their bodies. Um, the, the response when you hold so strongly to your control over children, both mm-hmm. as a society and as a parent, mm-hmm. is to ridicule anything that would suggest mm-hmm. that your child has a say, that really they're going to grow up to have problematic issues because you protected their consent to say no to a hug or a touch or a tickle that they don't feel comfortable with, mm-hmm. but completely undermine their you know, their yeah. involvement in their own uh, experience for fear that we may lose control of them. It's no wonder that we would grow up to be laboring people and not know how to give consent for touch Absolutely. and interventions that we don't want on or in our body. Yeah. It's also interesting to me right now, just sitting here in 2022, that we have a whole generation of children that probably understand consent better than some of our elder providers who have not been practicing consent in the same context for a long time. So I think that it's definitely a shift happening. And just like with any transition, of course, there's going to be some pain and discomfort during that transition. But I do think that there is a shift happening in the context of consent, I hope. And as I listen to children in the, in the primary care setting, I do see and hear more that I also see where they're readily dismissed by elders because they're children or teens Mm. for understanding Mm -hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But I've done my best yeah. to just encourage them to keep on because you're not wrong just because somebody older feels um, their toes a little bit stepped on that you may understand this better than they do. Yeah. Um, if I think this is what we should hope for the next generation of children Absolutely. to understand things better than we do. But um, yeah. it's also easy to feel a bit intimidated by that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if 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 we say as a society that we want to propagate and enforce autonomy, mm-hmm. bodily autonomy, healthcare autonomy, when it's convenient or makes sense, you know, for like ideology, then we have to be willing to apply that to our own bodies and our own children's bodies. Absolutely. We have to be able to just know how to apply that across the board. Yeah. We want to be consistent. Yeah. Yeah. So so as a as a consumer, I guess, as a client, patient, mm-hmm. fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm trying to figure out, so for our listeners, they're listening and they're kind of thinking, okay, so then how how do I how do I navigate that? Like that just seems like such a huge Pandora's box to open up and then, you know, where do I even start? Um, we often use this brain acronym, mm-hmm. you know, to help help our clients, help our patients kind of work through informed decision making. Yeah. So can we go through the BRAIN acronym and just sort of unpack that? Yeah. 
Yeah, a lot of um, uh, aspects of the brain acronym are exactly what we've been talking about, but this is a great way to organize it in your mind and, yeah. and, uh, and be prepared with it. Do you, um, you want me to just kind of lay it out there and, and discuss it? Yeah, okay. yeah. So when I say brain acronym, I'm mm-hmm. talking about an acronym, B-R-A-I-N, that stands for Benefits, Risks, Alternatives, Intuition, mm-hmm. and then and Doing Nothing. Next Steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or Next nothing. Steps. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yeah, so let's just kind of talk through how, maybe how it's often presented. Because mm-hmm. like I was talking about earlier with like breaking somebody's water, sometimes people will walk in and talk about benefits, maybe not really talk about risks as much. And, sure. you know, so yeah, let's just go through yeah. the acronym. Yeah, so, you know, benefits are tend to be the first thing on the table. Mm-hmm. Why? Because obviously if we're suggesting a procedure... We're doing that with the idea in mind that there's a there are positive reasons why we want to do this or mm-hmm. why we're we're bringing it you know to the forefront. And that is a good point, just for everybody listening, because we are trying to organize here. You've got to ask yourself first: Is this intervention or this um, recommendation being offered to me to like for? Am I being asked to do something or not do something? Ninety nine percent of the time, like we're saying, it's. Somebody is encouraging me to do something. Right. To accept an intervention or to yeah. take a medication or to have imaging or do something. Right. Okay. So in that context, sorry, go ahead. No, you're absolutely so, right. And the onus of responsibility there is to present. These are the reasons why I'm suggesting this to you right now. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to kind of uh, clarify or focus down into the um, the birthing situation, because that's uh, what we're here talking about majority, though, though, this can be extrapolated across all kinds of healthcare. All kinds. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea is that we're going to say, typically, this is something I'm offering to you, and it's because we'd like to see this happen faster. We believe that you will be less fatigued. Your comfort will be better. Mm-hmm. Um, your outcomes are less likely to be complicated. Your baby may tolerate the situation better. You know, mm-hmm. simple examples, turn on your side, walk around. We should have something to drink. I'd like to listen to the heart rate at this pace. These mm-hmm. are the reasons why, because if this is going on, if there's, um, you know, entrapment of the cord, we're going to hear that mm-hmm. when we're, when we're, um, uh, auscultating the heart rate, whatever way we've chosen to do it. Um, and so let's do it, where real information um, also includes the risks. And the first thing you always need to piggyback onto that when I believe when you're when you're introducing an intervention to a consumer is, but I want you to also think about this and understand here's what can happen if we do. Mm-hmm. Breaking water, artificial rupture of the membranes, as you brought up, is a great example because there are some remote risks that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, they can include uh, the cord moving down where it doesn't belong and being compressed. Mm-hmm. That changes the entire uh, climate of, of labor and, and possibly will in, have to involve a, um, a surgical intervention if you can't release it. Um, an open pathway for bacteria, so infection can set in. So if we have a long uh, journey in front of us, we don't always know at that time, we're taking a risk there where that can occur. Um, malpresentation or babe descending down in a, um, a position that's just not conducive because instead of making that slow, gradual 
progression mm -hmm. uh, downward, the sudden release of the buoyancy of the waters below baby can change all that. So mm -hmm. a lot of people don't think of those things or understand. They need to be presented. Um, you're kind of on the clock there. Um, so those things are important and they're important to be, the, the way we uh, provide that information is objective. We spend similar amount of time talking about risks and benefits mm -hmm. um, because they need to be weighed. Mm -hmm. There are always risks and benefits to everything we do, including, as you mentioned before, doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And since we're talking about risks, just real quick, one of the most common um, uh, answers that I'll hear sometimes that is, is not an answer um, when somebody's asking for clarification on risks, sometimes I'll hear a provider say, minimal. Yeah. And I'm kind of sitting back there thinking, it's not a risk. Yeah. Minimal like, what? <laughs> I mean, compared to what? What are we? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I'm just reminding everybody, also make sure that, that the answers that you're given really are filling in blanks for your specific mm -hmm. questions. If you want to know what the specific risk is and they say, Risks are rare, minimal, words like that. That's not an actual answer. Yeah. As a consumer, say, okay, but rare what? What happens yeah. rarely? What am, what am I? Because the only way that I can say yes or no with conviction is if I know what rare event I'm mm -hmm. welcoming if I make this decision. A very, very good point. Yeah. Um, Risks and benefits, you know, some of that self-explanatory. And, of course, we talked about the fine-tuning. Alternatives is mm -hmm. an important uh, part of the discussion, too, because if a person has reasons that they feel not accepting of a procedure, mm -hmm. it doesn't resonate. They're, um, maybe they've had, a, as you mentioned, prior experience with it that didn't go well. So they mm -hmm. have reservations and um, or a fear of it for whatever reason or um you know, are simply choosing not to do it. Well, what can I do instead? Almost nothing in the in the form of procedures or interventions in the birth process mm -hmm. um, lacks any alternative that we could try instead or try first. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, you know, perfect example in a hospital setting when things slow down and haven't made a lot of progress, according to the uh, Friedman's car. But yes, <laughs> yeah, Sorry, the, the prescribed it, pace whatever, at which, yeah, yeah where we expect things. And our training, you know, hospital staff and otherwise, mm -hmm. um, does take into account this kind of middle-of-the-road progression. Mm -hmm. If we fall far off of that and we want to have a talk about it, and maybe the consumer wants to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the provider wants to talk about it. Um, one of the things that's readily offered, we'll hang up a little Pitocin. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing your body makes. Not quite. Um, and we'll just drip it in, and that will increase the the mm -hmm. um, uh, the frequency, hopefully, the intensity of contractions, and we're back on track. Mm -hmm. um, many people have done their reading to understand that there's some neurological implications mm -hmm. for our baby with prolonged exposure, and there are some implications in how the uterus involutes after birth and mm -hmm. a higher risk of hemorrhage. All those things. So what could we do instead? Well, right. if you've been maybe lying on one side or in one position or have had no nutrition, why don't we take a walk? Why mm -hmm. don't we change positions? Why don't we introduce, you know, something like a shower or a tub? Um, why don't we get some calories in, in mm -hmm. whatever way in the setting you're in that's uh, considered acceptable? So there are alternatives. And I'll just interject here and say that this is a really good example of why Specifically with birth, someone would want to hire a doula, um, but also why it's really important that a team is interdisciplinary. So 
when one provider offers what they have in their tool bag and they don't offer alternatives, it may not be because they're specifically withholding mm-hmm. alternatives yeah. maliciously. They just might not know them. Right. You know, I don't know a whole lot of OBGYNs and I know a handful that I would totally trust and respect and and send my my patients to. Mm-hmm. They may not know how to do the three sisters technique on spinning babies. They may not know how to do a sideline release. They may not know how to do belly sifting or use a rebozo or do things that can help facilitate rotation and descent that could actually get labor to progress in a forward motion. They were trained with pharmacological interventions, and Pitocin is a really effective one. So they're not being malicious. That's what they know. Yeah. So having a bigger, a wider range on your team that has different scopes is a really good idea yeah. when you're talking about informed decision-making because of the alternatives. Absolutely. The base um, of information and yeah. your informed consent or refusal is greater. Yeah. And it's also why sometimes moms and partners and sisters and friends, um, don't they make great support people, but yeah. they don't, they're not doulas specifically right. because they don't have that skill set of knowing those techniques. It's a very technical job and yes. it's got a whole specific different skill set than typically a partner, unless they are a doula yeah. or even midwives and OBGYNs and nurses and different people who maybe have not had that, right. that specific training. As part of their training. That, yeah. that's, so just, that's absolutely right. Um, and extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, there are situations where the information being given is crafted to bring about a certain result. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, people are offering what they know. Yep. You know, I worked as a full-time labor and delivery nurse for years. Yeah. And I didn't know any of the things that you just mentioned. It was not part Me of my either. training. And yeah. we had a good training. And yeah. we were willing to move and work with people. But I was limited in my resources mm-hmm. in the hope that we got into a position that shifted things. But to know exactly how, understand the the mechanical engineering of a laboring mom and her baby, mm-hmm. um, that's a whole different yeah. a whole different thing. So alternatives are huge because when, for whatever reason, the, the intervention in question is really being, you know, maybe we're at that point because we are, we have a complication arising. It's not mm-hmm. just, what do we do now? But I'm concerned about this. There's mm-hmm. a low-grade fever. We've had a really long, you know, protracted phase and nothing seems to be working. There's genuine cause for concern. Mm-hmm. Having alternatives, um, that's more information mm-hmm. by which people can, you know, choose if they're how, how to how to go forward with the intervention that's being offered. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even, you know, even breaking down the benefits and the risks of the alternatives and then comparing yeah. them to the benefits and the risks of the original intervention that's offered, you know, yeah. there's all these like sub, <laughs> yeah. sub variants. Ultimately, of, that's yeah. what we do every time we introduce an yeah. alternative. Yeah. Most people can readily accept that a walk around the hall has fewer risks than a pharmaceutical mm-hmm. drug, but that has to be innately understood yeah. by all parties in that conversation right. yeah. for, for it to be useful. So yeah, yeah. A, a very, very good point. So those three things are kind of the meat of what's happening. Mm-hmm. I think the I, the intuition has a huge pool and there's a lot to talk about with it. And the reason why is because I think probably everybody listening, I know for myself, I trust that you do too. In fact, I'm sure of it. Um, recognize times when intuition has spoken loudly mm-hmm. um, in various parts of your life, not just labor and birth. Um, but when we're, 
when evidence base is important and we're, we're striving to, um, you know, protect safety and, you know, improve outcomes and we care about the evidence, trying to find a way to quantify the very qualitative nature of our intuition is not easy. Now, it's not impossible, mm-hmm. but it takes time and understanding. And if it's not part of your medical training, chances are excellent it's not, mm-hmm. then we need to do better at presenting intuition and what we know about intuition and how it impacts outcomes. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard for people with medical training that are looking at a complication and they're offering an intervention. They have to act. Their professional organization, their protocols within their facility are requiring them to act on the situation that they're dealing with. And even in a, in a home or at a hospital setting, the, the, our professional organizing bodies and our, um, our risk parameters do require us to act mm-hmm. at times mm-hmm. when we're finding ourselves there. And the discussion comes up of a mom's intuition or a family or a birthing person's intuition about the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, we all know that it matters. We yeah. all know that it's an important part of, we, we have stories in our own past and we've heard other people's stories where intuition unlocked the problem. Yeah. But we're fearful to use this tool that's in our kit and it's polished and shiny and it's lined up with the other tools because we're not sure that we can legally defend right. the use of that intuition. So yeah. we know. Yeah, you can't chart it, you can't measure it. Yeah. And those are the things that we're told. Yep. So at some point, maybe further training and looking and and creating studies around Mm -hmm. the the qualitative nature of if we look at a large sample size of birthing people who have responded with a deep gut feeling about something, Mm -hmm. it's not based on nothing. Our intuition is not, doesn't act alone. It acts on the bits of, of quantitative information we know. And things that have happened to us before. So it's the intuition is multifaceted. But um, when we can study and quantify how do the outcomes look when people have been allowed to recognize that? How can we determine whether this idea or this refusal or this acceptance or this consent um, based on intuition? Um how did it turn out? How is how do we know whether this is intuition or whether it's fear? Right. She says, I have a gut feeling that this isn't the way to go. Yeah. But the reality is I have an intense fear because of something that's happened before. Yeah. So skilled training and preparation and recognition of how to identify intuition, mm-hmm. what goes into it, and how much can we trust it from a scientific standpoint mm-hmm. when we've allowed birthing people in their settings and, of course, with necessary safety Mm -hmm. parameters to go with their gut when they feel that very strongly. What Mm -hmm. happens when they do? You can quantify that to a degree. And I think that you you really touched on one of the most important points when trying to decipher um, how how to utilize intuition. Um, I think it really does have to do with fear, Mm -hmm. with fear or peace. So Mm -hmm. when I'm counseling someone on how to use their intuition, whether or not we should really listen to this, whether or not we should do other things to to quiet to quiet those voices is usually based on is this voice, is this feeling, is this 
Is this energy bringing you this powerful message that ultimately, if you feel like if you go with it, you're going to have this extraordinary amount of peace, Mm -hmm. even if it's the last thing you want to do? Or is it going to continue to bring you a lot of anxiety and a lot of just, you know, irritability and like what does that feel like in your body yeah angst and, and unsettlement and yeah learning to recognize it yeah I mean um you know just from my own personal experience I've had to make excruciating decisions um for my child and the very last decision that any mother ever wants to make for their child and and so it wasn't based on something that I wanted but I knew I knew deep down that with all the information that we had and all the possibilities that were swirling around and all the like, well, one person of people, this could happen and this might happen. And, you know, I knew underneath all of it that the decision that I made was based on whether or not, I mean, I based my decision on like a suffering threshold and, um, and once once we made that decision, my my husband and I, there was great sadness that I'll never recover from probably, but there was also yeah. peace. And that's how I knew mm-hmm. that that was that that decision was not based out of fear. Mm-hmm. It was actually based on like a deep wisdom yes. that came from something somewhere else, a different source, God, love, universe, whatever you might um, identify mm-hmm. with. There is that aspect of it that is sort of like, you know, kind of in the background helping you make those decisions. Yes, yes. I, I, it, that's such an important perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's it's critical that when when you and I and our consumers are learning to identify their intuition and to tease it out from other types of emotions, looking for an avoidance of discomfort. Mm-hmm is a primary way to test the metal of your intuition and determine whether you really in your gut believe, in your intuition believe that this is the best course of action or this is a protective layer against something that will be unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is a critical distinction. Mm I use that phrase a lot, but it really speaks to um, the importance of understanding the difference between that and this. Yeah. So, And I'll tell you, you know, in the last 15 years that I've been part of either like a nursing role or a doula role or working in the birth community, working in the medical field at all, I don't think that that's been put to the test more so than in the last couple of years. And I don't know how many families and people that I sat with that would say things like, I'm not going to live in fear, but then their decisions were really being made out of fear and you could put it to the test and you could tell that it wasn't, Yes, it was still wasn't bringing them peace. They don't want to live under the thumb of the thing that you fear. So they don't realize that they're choosing to live under the thumb of the thing that, that they fear. Yeah. But yeah. it's not really a lack of fear. Right. It's that I tend to fear this because of my underpinnings and preparation more mm-hmm. than I fear that. Right, and that's an unfair way to um, to call something an intuition. It's blaming intuition for conditioning. Yeah, exactly. You know, right? Yeah. Um, because you could have a great fear of hospitals your whole entire life, and not want to be transferred to a hospital setting, 
and call it, I've just got this intuition that if I go to the hospital, it's going to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. But if you stay at home, you still don't have a peace. You don't. You still don't have this like, yes, this is the right thing to do. You're still mm-hmm. very anxious and very unsettled. Mm-hmm. That is not your intuition about the hospital. That's your conditioning. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's really true for a lot of people. I mean, a lot of us, rightly so, don't trust the medical model. You know, historically they've done racist and sexist and horrible things to get, you know, the tools and sure. the evidence that they use, you know, to practice modern medicine. So yeah. I can understand why, valid fear. why it is there, but we do have to be honest about that. Yeah. We do have to say, this is why I don't want to choose this intervention, yeah. not because I'm honestly weighing out the benefits and the risks and trusting my intuition. Yeah. This is my conditioning and this is my... Yeah, assumption in my opinion. I agree totally. Because if you would look at or assess a group of families that perhaps didn't utilize a hospital setting and tried to handle something outside of the tools in that kit um, and experienced a loss and mortality that wouldn't have happened, their perspective in the future on a hospital setting versus they're going to have a fear that looks very different because of what they've experienced. Mm -hmm. That's a conditioning of sorts too. So it's, you know, you don't want thinking you're making a good decision based on intuition to simply be, this hasn't been my experience yet, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, to to guide the decision you make because those (coughs) kinds of decisions will become the building blocks for new fears Mm -hmm. because you have not made a, a wise decision. Yeah. And we're, you know, I, I keep using the the example of out of hospital and hospital settings um, in a lot of my examples because our listeners mostly are, I mean, this is Preg Your Pardon, so this is more of a birth podcast, but you can really apply this to anything, whether it's taking medication, mm-hmm. whether it's, um, you know, doing imaging or choosing other interventions in your life that even aren't healthcare related. It's just really important to kind of think through some of these um these aspects of, of decision-making. Yeah. But I, uh, it comes to mind the, the many conversations I had with my own mother and the, the, um, across her life, but especially in her final, um, months, she had an acute anxiety about taking medication. She'd mm-hmm. read and read with a magnifying glass, all those folds of paper on the back of the Walgreens yeah. packaging mm-hmm. that everybody gets rid of. Right. And, uh, and just, anguish over it. Mm-hmm. It was she didn't want to anguish over it, but she could not see her way clear of the fears that all those things she was reading would happen. Mm-hmm. And I I always tried to illustrate to her, but you also have to read the package insert for if you don't because you don't realize that this is you're not being offered a medication like this for absolutely no reason at all. Mm-hmm. Um and of course there are, you know, speaking to our specific community, a lot of other alternatives, you know, the A in brain when it comes to, but her condition was a little bit more, um, you know, organic cardiac specific, um, a particular conversation that I remember. And it was hard for her to recognize that if you typed in small print, all of the things that were going on, the risks involved in not treating one way or another, this condition, they look very similar. Yeah. And you're you're missing the anxiety that you need, the information that you need to be responding to by reading that insert because it doesn't come in print. 
Mm-hmm. You have to have an awareness of it. You have to have your attention directed to mm-hmm. it. Most people assume I'm offering this because you came to me with a problem. Mm-hmm. But if you're not listing the risks of not acting, you're not really able to make a, a an accurate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's also not fair to just, to just compare risks of doing the intervention without comparing the risks that may present from not doing the intervention. Absolutely. That's the entire Exactly. Focus. You know, yeah. and I mean, just to kind of piggy bank off the example that you just used, because um, going to the hospital is probably the number one conditioned um, response that in my practice that I, I would get from people, like, I just don't want to be in the hospital. Okay. So that's one thing. But then I also do have a lot of people who just are anti quote unquote medication. Either they have... Um, a really bad taste in their mouth and really don't trust, you know, pharmaceutical companies. Maybe they think the government is involved in different things. There's different aspects, um, many, many aspects. But again, we do have to weigh out, you know, if you, if you are up all night for five nights in a row with prodromal labor and you haven't slept, we know that the cascade of hormones that initiate a spontaneous labor have a lot to do with melatonin and other hormones that that really need that really good relaxed state. You do have to weigh out, say, for instance, I don't know, taking a Benadryl to be able to sleep and maybe get into a really relaxed state to be able for your body to go into labor. If you're just so black and white and you're like, I just don't believe in medication— yeah. And then we end up having to transfer for therapeutic sleep. They're not going to give you a Benadryl. No. They're going to give you an Ambien, yeah. or they're going to give you an epidural, yeah. or they're going to give you something that's or a whole lot more invasive. An IM or IV narcotic. Or, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so we always kind of have to make sure that we're having a fair conversation when people say, I don't, I don't believe in that, or I don't think it's safe, compared mm-hmm. to what? And yes. then that also kind of helps that to drive that intuition, too. You know, I don't yeah. think it's safe drive my car into a mailbox, but if there's an oncoming semi, mm-hmm. I would absolutely I'm gonna choose the mailbox. Choose the mailbox. <laughs> but if I was just rolling down a clear empty road, I would yeah. not. Yeah. So there is always a, a, a relative perspective because yeah. whatever you're aiming for doesn't look the same yeah. when the, the scenario around it changes. And I, I have dealt with a very similar kind of perspective focus, hyper-focus on perspective in primary care. And I love our community. Mm -hmm. They're wonderful. I do understand why just simply putting, you know, stopping the body's responses where they are with comfort measures like fever reducers and things like that, that's not beneficial. I don't go right directly to them. So I respect these families and wanting to understand, but some are so absolutely so diehard about the idea that they will never give that to their child, almost like they're checking a box, you know, to say, mm-hmm. I've never done it mm-hmm. versus I've only ever had to do that twice, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. But when you have certain aspects of childhood illness that you can't roll out, could this be meningitis? What if we have lost our fever regulators? Mm-hmm. Benign fever is always benign, but we don't always have all the knowledge necessary to determine if our child has a benign fever right now or is mm-hmm. critically ill. Mm-hmm. So, attempting to bring a fever down or seeing how they respond may be critical. But there, I have seen people go to the ER with a child with high fever without having given a fever reducer at home, not recognizing that now you've got a hospital stay and they're going to give you a fever reducer when you hit the door. Mm -hmm. And that's how they're going to determine your child, thankfully, isn't 
critically ill with something, you know, that's risky. And of course, some of them have been. Mm-hmm. Um, that's rare. Mm-hmm. Most kiddos have fevers, roseola, some benign childhood virus, but some have had viral meningitis and some have had sepsis and some have had some unknown, you know, reason for that. Mm-hmm. When a child runs 104, you've got the people that say, oh, all my kids do that. And that's mm-hmm. great. That's true. I've had, I have one kid who did that. I did that. Mm-hmm. But I any of those individual situations, I didn't know if there was something critically ill. So the, the first thing I'm going to do is test a few aspects of it to determine how they respond. Yeah. You know, that's not the same as every time there's a stuffy nose, you give a, a round of amoxicillin and Tylenol around the clock. Right. Not the same. Right. Um, but having a narrative about how I feel about my philosophy about yeah. pharmaceuticals versus each individual scenario. Yeah. The semi-truck versus the mailbox, yeah. a perfect illustration. What's heading toward me when mm-hmm. I decide whether this mailbox is going to be a good fit? Yeah, and if you don't know what's heading toward you and mm-hmm. you're only basing your your um, decision-making on, I will never run into a mailbox ever, 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 no matter what, yes. you will get hit by a semi yes. eventually. or drive off a or cliff something. or... And so yeah. I think that's a, such a good point that you made. You know, yeah, we do have one side that maybe would give Tylenol and amoxicillin every time there's a stuffy nose. Mm-hmm. But then we also have to be fair and say we also have people who would absolutely never give those things no matter what. Right. Both of those are just as equally dangerous. That's, that is correct. If you don't really understand the risk that's coming at you. Yes. And the if primary, you're not willing to have a conversation about that, you're never yes, going to know. That's the thing. I, I, I trust and recognize and value the reasons that have led people to not wanting to give meds all the time. That's Absolutely. why they came to me. Mm-hmm. I agree. I've been the same way. But let's not ever be... 100% closed or open to an idea and fail to assess an individual circumstance because it is dangerous. And I have seen that play out. Yeah. Um, you know, fortunately with not devastating outcomes, but outcomes that could have been things that we did not see coming, um, they do happen. So um, as you well know, so yeah. I think that's a, yeah. a, a incredibly important. And we sort of enveloped the end, the idea of doing nothing or next steps mm-hmm. in that conversation. So we'll just put a cap and end on that. Yeah. Here's how we determine what happens if we do nothing. Yeah. How do we individually look at this and make sure that we keep assessing, we keep serially assessing. Maybe we make a decision here at five centimeters with a temp of 100 um, and ruptured membranes and no contractions. And we say, nope, we're going to keep going. I think we're okay. Mm-hmm. Maybe at seven to eight centimeters, things are cruising right along and temp is down to normal and mom's hydrated and here comes a baby. And maybe now her temp is 103 and nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. You, when you make an informed decision or you consent to a procedure, that doesn't change your direction like a train track that you you never find yourself back here again. Mm-hmm. You continue to reassess the scenario and the yeah. new information and use that ongoing. Yeah. One other aspect of doing nothing um, that I always like to remind my clients about. So cervical checks is a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, some people never want a cervical check at all. Their whole prenatal period, their whole labor, and we have a baby and we don't need one. It's fine. Yeah. Um, most people know when they're ready to have a baby and they don't need me to tell them. 
Some people really get a lot of useful information from a cervical check, even if it's emotional information that they need to like encourage their bodies. Um, Sometimes we're trying to decide if we're right up against that window of needing to transfer. Maybe we're 42 weeks or maybe we've had a prolonged rupture. Mm -hmm. We need that information to make a decision. So I always ask my, you know, my clients before we, before we get this diagnostic information, draw a lab, do a check, check imaging, whatever, what are we going to do with the information? Mm-hmm. And you have to be willing, I mean, me as a provider, once I have the information, I've opened Pandora's box, right? Like if it's not something I want to know, now I you know have it, to do something with it. Something. You can't ignore it. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. sometimes that is part of that doing nothing is like, are we willing to do the next steps that yeah. we need to do once we have this information. Yeah, that would be required if this is what we right. find when right. we open that door. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. the answer is no. You know, I, I think I'm probably just like looking for a problem because, you know, you look for a problem long enough, you're going to find one. And so sometimes doing sure. nothing just insulates us from that. Yeah. But I think too often we just want to do all the labs and all the imaging and all the checks and, mm-hmm. you know, all the monitoring. And mm-hmm. then, well, now we've, now we know. Because we're looking for reassurance yeah. that was never guaranteed. Right. If we yeah. get those results back, that's that's not what we find. Now we have to act. So, mm. Yeah. So just for everybody listening, really, really, really keep that in mind. Um, what, are you, what are you wanting to know with the information and what are you willing to do with the information? Um, because once you know, you need to, usually you need to follow it up with an action. And so... That's part of that that doing nothing is sometimes just waiting, not having the information if everything is is seemingly normal and stable. Everybody seems to be safe. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's perfectly fine to not do anything so that you don't have to know something. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. It's the, the same idea that says, what could be the downside to, to monitoring continuously your fetus what could be the downside we see every heartbeat Mm -hmm. and what we found absolutely confirmed in the literature is that there's no improvement of outcomes we have no fewer babies that had a terrible outcome or were born um compromised or didn't survive what we have found is that we had a whole lot more intervention Mm -hmm. and so there's there is a time and a place there are situations that call for that but I'm referring to under normal circumstances, the intermittent fetal monitoring guidelines, and those are ACOG set out, yeah. are set out that way for a reason. Yeah. Same with imaging, you know, third trimester. That, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's those, yeah, that's those so ultrasounds <laughs> every week. And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden we have, you know, we have something that's shown up on the ultrasound that we mm-hmm. either have to refer for, we have to get MFM involved, we mm-hmm. have to do the next steps. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we've introduced a lot of fear into yeah. this family's life right before term. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So, there's just, there's a lot of reasons why if, unless the body, the baby, the laboring person, you know, presents with a reason yeah. to investigate further, sometimes it's better if we sit on our hands and we do nothing as providers <laughs> and as consumers. It's just good to remember that sometimes your provider might be doing a whole lot by doing nothing. Yes. Yes. Problems have a tendency to declare themselves. We should wait for that. 
All right. Well, I have got a lot more questions, but <laughs> for the sake of time, I think what I'm going to do is break up this episode into part one and part two. So we are going to wrap up part one for today. All right. And then we will um, we'll be right back with part two on another episode okay. and we'll continue this conversation because yeah. we've got a lot That's more. That's an to invite. Go. I'm in. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. All it right. was a pleasure. Until next time, be safe and be well and be kinder than necessary.